it's good to be back before you again. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take those out and turn with me to Luke chapter 13. The Gospel of Luke chapter 13. And we're going to spend our time in verses 1 through 5 this morning. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, as we read the word of the Lord. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we cannot come close to fully comprehending the greatness of your glory or the depth of the love that you have for us. Yet you have made these things known in our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of him, our earnest desire this morning is to know you more. So we pray, help us toward that end by the power of your Spirit working within us. Help us to glean from this passage the things you would have us to understand, a a faithful comprehension, Lord, of what you're communicating, and let us contemplate afresh both the seriousness of our sins and the wonder of your grace, and let our hearts be stirred always to a greater devotion and worship of your holy name for your glory and for our joy, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, normally when... uh, when it comes to preaching a text, I take a fairly straightforward approach and just seek to walk verse by verse through the text. And while this will certainly still be uh, an expositional sermon, the text kind of warrants that we come a little bit differently because you may have noticed that the point of this text is fairly straightforward. Um, it says what it means, it means what it says, and there's really just a, a central theme there that These people who have suffered in a great way were not worse sinners than all the other sinners simply because of what happened to them, but rather what the hearers of Jesus need to understand is that unless they, that is, all people repent of their sins, they will perish as well. And so he's reorienting their perspective, and that really is the central idea in our text this morning. Secondly, you notice that really our text says the same thing twice. It gives two examples And it gives the same answer to both. So lest we repeat ourselves, we're going to take the main ideas of this text and approach it that way. So before we really jump in, I want to give you an example. You know, probably one of the most cliche things that's ever asked is, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And then comes the glass illustration, right? Is your glass half empty or is it half full? And of course, the answer to that the same either way, but the answer we're looking for is tells us something about your perspective. Are you optimistic, saying, hey, I have half a glass here. What a, what a glorious thing. Or are you more negative, saying, wow, I only have half a glass. I wish I had a full one. 
Well, I don't want you to think that this is simply a glasses half full or glasses half empty um, situation, but I, I bring that before you because what this text has in common with that illustration is that it does push into perspective. That is, how we look at a situation, our viewpoint, and the assumptions that we bring to a given situation. <coughs> Jesus' questioners are bringing a certain perspective, a certain set of assumptions, and his response, as he so often does, uh, reorients that perspective, or rather exposes the flaw in their thinking. What Jesus is doing is he's challenging the typical human assumption, I would say, uh, with a dire warning, that is, if lest we repent, we will perish. But at the same time, he's highlighting the amazing grace of God. And so I want to give you the summary right up front that we're going to spend the rest of our time expounding, and that is this, that the amazing thing about grace is not that some don't receive it. The amazing thing about grace is that any receive it at all. Now, the first thing here is we have these people who come to Jesus. It says there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, our translation there doesn't exactly capture the sense of what took place. So there were some present. The word translated there present could also be translated there were some who had come. And so it's the difference between these people being there while Jesus has been teaching the crowds and these people coming along as Jesus is teaching. Now, you'll remember that oftentimes the gospel writers, when they're conveying uh, a situation where Jesus is teaching a large crowd, if something comes up from the crowd, they'll write something like, well, then the crowd said to them, or then some of those gathered said to Jesus. But instead, he doesn't do that here. Instead... Luke says, some came along at that very time, or at that same time. So he has the picture of Jesus teaching the crowd, and these others coming along and bringing this question forth. And the only real significance of that is to show that they weren't necessarily recipients of what Jesus had taught in chapter 12. Because at the beginning of chapter 12, we find Jesus before a crowd of many thousands and find him teaching a number of different things about faith and about life. So we don't want to make the error of seeing this as these people's response to Jesus' teaching. They likely were coming from um, outside of Jerusalem, coming in and bringing Jesus this news. And that also gives us something of their perspective because they feel like they're telling Jesus something that he didn't know about. They feel like they're breathing, bringing something that is newsworthy, that's worth reporting, and they expect him, evidently, to provide an answer or some insight into their implied question, which is, much like the disciples asked of the blind man in John 9, what was the sin that these people had in their lives that they would suffer such a terrible tragedy? That tragedy, of course, being that these Galileans had apparently been in the temple offering sacrifices, and the Roman governor Pontius Pilate sent a contingency of soldiers to murder them in the temple, and therefore mixing their blood with the sacrifices. To a Jewish person, that was almost the apex of judgment 
if you will. So they asked the question, what did they do to warrant such a reaction from God? Now, going back to what Jesus has already taught, though, which becomes significant for us, even though Jesus' questioners hadn't necessarily, as far as we know, heard what Jesus had taught up to this point in chapter 12, we have to remember, from an interpretive standpoint, Luke is writing this to an audience. Theophilus is the one who he was writing to in the first place, but now we receive it in the same way. And so whether or not Jesus' questioners heard his teaching, we have. Luke assumes that we have read chapter 12. It was meant to be read together in one sitting. And so in chapter 12, Jesus has already taught about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's taught that we are to fear God, not men. He's taught that we are to profess Christ, no matter what that may cost us. He's taught that we are to reject worldliness and instead pursue a heavenly treasure that moth or rust cannot destroy. He's taught us to trust in the Lord who will provide for our needs. He knows what we need. He's taught us that we should not, therefore, be anxious. He's taught us to be diligent, to live actively in light of the gospel, being prepared at all times, lest our master return and find us complacent. He pointed out the reality that his teaching will bring division between friends, between family, between those who are associated in society. He taught that we ought to know the times through his teaching. And he's taught almost immediately before this in chapter 13 that we ought to settle with our accusers. And so what's the point? The point is that Jesus has brought a lot of heavy teaching here. And now we can be honest here. Whenever we are faced with moral teaching, whenever we are faced with right or wrong, especially from the scriptures, with what our Savior says is to be right and good and true of us, what does that do if not remind us of how we fail to live up to those standards? And the, the sin nature in us, the, the disposition in us, is to start justifying ourselves. Now, if we're being honest, we know that we can't say, yeah, did that, okay, do that perfectly, okay, according to what Jesus says, I'm good. No, we know we fall short of that. And the tendency is to look then at others and start looking around and say, well, I don't have it all together, but at least I'm doing it better than they do. At least I'm not as bad as them. And in context here, these people bringing the news about the Galileans, that seems to be something of what they're doing. They're looking at these others and saying, wow, I'm glad I'm not as bad as they are. They're like the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee praying in the temple says, Thank you, God, I'm not like this man, a sinner and a tax collector. And so as we come to this then, we have to ask the question then. How do we fit in with these questioners? Do we have that perspective sometimes? And what does Jesus say then to us? And what is his message to the world in, in explaining this and in looking at this, we're going to learn something about the role of sin, or rather about the role of suffering and tragedy in the world. Now, as I've already said, we've explained what happened in the temple. In verse um, 3, we see Jesus bring out another example. I'm sorry, in verse 4. Having already 
uh, understood something of what the people are saying about the Galileans, he now points out something that happened actually in Jerusalem uh, to some Jews who lived in Jerusalem at the Tower of Siloam. Now, we don't have any other record of these two events, either with the Galileans or at the Pool of Siloam. But this other event is one in which apparently the tower fell there near the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, and it killed 18 people. Now, we can say that that certainly seems like what we would say an act of God, right? Uh, something that, like that doesn't just happen. This tower fall over on 18 people, that had to be under the sovereign hand of God for a reason. And so Jesus, what he's doing is, he's pointing that out. And he's saying, look, it didn't just happen to the Galileans. It happened to those who live right here in Jerusalem as well. Do you think that they were worse sinners? And obviously in both cases, his answer is no. It could even be translated more strongly as by no means. They were not. And he flips it around on them and says, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now I want to share with you a little bit of the background on why uh, these Jewish uh, questioners would have had this perspective of expecting that a great tragedy was the judgment of God. Now, many of you, most of you, are probably familiar with the Old Testament. We see uh, time and time again where God both promises to bring blessing for covenant obedience and to bring curse for covenant disobedience, and we see that played out time and time again as Israel is unfaithful to their Lord. That is very familiar to us. We also have examples uh, more generally, even outside of God's uh, particular covenant with his people. We have the more general teaching that if one will do well, there will be blessing. For example, in Genesis 4 and verse 7, God said to Cain, if you do well, Will you not be blessed? Likewise, we see in a different way Job's friends. When Job was suffering terribly, obviously acts of God bringing great suffering to him. Job's friends sat down and they asked the question, who that was ever, or who that was innocent ever perished? Now we know as the book of Job goes on that Job's friends didn't have the right perspective but they weren't necessarily wrong in that, in that it is true. God does not punish the innocent. God does not bring calamity upon the innocent. So rather, the problem then, for these people bringing the question to Jesus, is not that they have the wrong understanding of God's justice. It seems that they do. Rather, the problem is in their understanding of themselves, because they're bringing, assuming that an individual can be righteous, and that sin is not so much something that is innate, that is within us, but it's something external that we can either participate in or not participate in, and that one can make themselves righteous enough so as not to incur the judgment of God, while others are so wicked that they do. The scholars sometimes call this the retribution principle. And simply stated, it's that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. Again, that is true in and of itself. But we have to ask the question, how does it flesh out in this life? 
So we move on then, and I, I really just want to break this into two pieces. And how we answer that question and look further in. That is first to look at the law and condemnation in this text. And then secondly to look at the gospel and grace as it comes to us in this text. So as I just mentioned, there is law in this text. Yes, even in the New Testament. And I loved, I believe it was last week, that our reading of the law actually came from the New Testament. Where Jesus says in Matthew, Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So often, especially in our, in our modern Christian times, um, we have the perspective that the Old Testament is law, the New Testament is gospel. But what that can tend to do is to drive a separation between law and gospel that was never intended to be there. Now, it's certainly important that we maintain the distinction. They are distinct. They are not the same thing, but they are also necessarily connected to one another. And so the whole reason then Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish, is because of the law. I've already mentioned to you, the people asking the question evidently didn't have the proper understanding of themselves. Namely, the sin that was within them, the problem of sin, and why it's a problem. Now, during the Reformation, Martin Luther uh, stated that justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Justification, of course, being how we are made right with God. That's absolutely true. But if that's true, then I would submit to you, then depravity is the doctrine upon which our understanding of justification stands or falls. Now, by the depravity, we simply mean that corruption of human nature, that sinfulness that is within us. We call that depravity. The real question is, what is the nature of this depravity? Is it merely a, an experience? Is it merely something that comes against us from the outside? Or is it something within us that is truly, thoroughly um, descriptive of who we are as people? And so what Jesus is rejecting, the view he's rejecting in this text is that some are less depraved than others. You see, that's the assumption of the questioners. They're assuming that they, probably, or at least somebody, are not as wicked and evil and sinful as those who met these terrible fates. That is, those who were murdered in the temple and those who were crushed by the tower. But Jesus is saying that is not true. You cannot merely look at and out and look at an individual situation and judge by that their standing with God. Now, is it true that God will bring punishment for disobedience? Yes. But the reason for that, the explanation for that belongs in the mind of God. We are not told why one suffers the terrible, tragic loss of a loved one. We are not told why we have to deal personally with cancer or with the loss of a job or with um, the persecution for our faith or, or what, what have you. We're not told specifically why God chooses us. Why me and not another? What we are told, according to the Westminster Confession, which summarizes it very well in chapter 3 and 
section 1, it says, God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, in the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now that is a wonderful summary of what the Bible does teach us about tragedy and about suffering. That God is in sovereign control over all of it. He governs all of it. He directs all of it. But that still brings us back to the question, right? Well, why? Why me? Why that person? If we remove ourselves from the Word, then more times than not, we're going to come to the conclusion that, well, it must then be based on the merit of the individual. Bad people get bad things. Good people get good things. And this became a terrible false teaching in the early church that is rooted in some of the same presuppositions that these questioners have here, namely the Pelagian heresy. Maybe you've heard of Pelagius or Pelagianism. Basically, it's the teaching that man is, is neutral in his disposition. In other words, he's not naturally corrupted. He didn't inherit the sin of Adam, but rather he's born neutral just as Adam was. And therefore, he has the potential to live perfectly righteously as Adam did. And therefore, even if he does sin, he can quit sinning altogether and be perfectly righteous and merit eternal life, as it were. Now, this heresy was condemned in two councils in the early church, Council of Ephesus, Council of Orange, because they saw that this was absolutely contrary to what the Scriptures teach. Namely, that man is born into sin. That man is corrupt. And therefore, that's why we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, it says, For you have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no one may boast. Now, these people here don't want to be too hard on them. In chapter 13, they probably weren't Pelagian, per se, in their thinking, but rather what we would call semi-Pelagian, meaning they admitted that there was some inherent corruption, some problem there. But at the same time, they didn't see it as pervasive enough to keep them from cooperating with grace. In other words, they saw that they could cooperate with God, they could contribute to being good, to being acceptable, to being righteous, and therefore warrant the, the merit of God. And again, Jesus looks directly at that and says, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, think about the shock that is to the ears, because they're assuming themselves righteous, or at least somewhat righteous, and he's saying basically, no, forget whatever the sin was of these people. It's irrelevant. Think of the worst sinner you can. You're on the same playing field as them. Now, that's where the gospel gets offensive to the flesh. It's because it says, I'm no better than the next person over here. I'm no better than the murderer, than the liar, than the swindler. No matter how good my works may seem. 
I am in need of the grace of God. For only by the grace of God in Christ Jesus may I be saved. Now, I knew a man once who he called me over to minister to him. He was actually the wife of a, a church member. Uh, excuse me, the husband of a church member. And he never attended, was not involved in the church in any way, but she was very faithful. Um, and he hit a point in his life where he was just convinced that he didn't have much longer to live. Uh, that turned out not to be the case at that time, but nevertheless, some health issues, he was very concerned. And so he, he called and asked if I would come over. So absolutely, I went over there, and we just began talking. And I spent um, more than an hour just listening to him kind of tell me his life story, listening to him tell me about all the things he had done, and... The common refrain, the common theme that he kept coming back to was the good things he had done. Now, he admitted fault. He admitted not making wise decisions here and there, but he kept coming back to, but I did this, and I would tell people about God. I would do good things, and I know God's got to be pleased with me, and so on and so forth. And what it came down to is he, he really wasn't looking for the gospel. That wasn't what he wanted to hear from me. What he was looking for was for me to affirm his goodness and to tell him, yeah, you're good with God. God's going to you know, let you into heaven. Of course, I couldn't do that. In fact, I went to Ephesians chapter 2 and I said, brother, listen to this here. It says that grace, our salvation is by grace, not of works that we may not boast. And so therefore, I can't give you any assurance because you will never have assurance if you're looking for your goodness to make you right with God. Because the Bible says this very thing here, unless you repent, you will perish. Now, unfortunately, he did not receive that very well. And he continued to be obstinate. But one of the things he has in common with this text is that he was looking at a lot of the suffering that he went through in his life, and he thought that that suffering made him right with God, that it somehow merited favor with God. But what we pull from this text is that at the end of the day, number one, the only thing we really deserve is the worst possible suffering. And secondly, Anything less than the worst possible suffering is mercy from God. Now that perspective, I would submit to you, can help us as we walk through tragedies and suffering like this. But I do want to qualify that by saying that is not the good news. That in and of itself is not the gospel. The gospel is not that because of the mercy of God we'll suffer less than we deserve. The gospel is that because of the grace of God, we will be rid of suffering and we will have eternal life with and through Christ Jesus. And that is where the gospel then is explicitly conveyed in this text. And that is that those who repent will not perish. In other words, Jesus extends the offer of the gospel of grace to all those who will hear and so here then we come back to this amazing thing, which is not that some suffer greatly in this life, but rather that God gives the opportunity for any to be saved. Now I would also point out that Jesus 
offers this gospel not in the context of just his 12 disciples or even just of his larger group of closest disciples, but before a crowd of many thousands. And he says, repent or perish. But what does that imply? That the opportunity for repentance is there. Now, one of my favorite lines in the hymn Amazing Grace that we're going to sing here in a moment to close is a line that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Now, it took me a while as a new Christian to understand what that meant. And to an unbeliever, that sounds crazy, right? Okay, you Christians, you talk about grace and how great it is and how, how joyous it makes you, and then you turn around and say, grace makes you fearful. Well, how does that make any sense? Well, only through the Scriptures can we understand what is really meant by that. But Newton, in writing, writing that hymn, presses in to where we and our experience with grace really begin. When God's sovereign grace comes to us and it opens the eyes of our heart to see and behold Christ our Savior, the very first thing we come into contact with is a holy and righteous fear. Because our minds and hearts are open to what Jesus teaches here, that the only thing we deserve is punishment, is wrath and that is a terribly fearful thing but that's also in my opinion why newton turns right around in the next line what does he say in grace my fears relieved so the very same grace that exposes us to god and his holy nature and our sinful standing before him is the same grace that opens our eyes to his mercy and love for us as displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that grace then is what enables us to repent, as Jesus says. And so the final thing we really must ask then is, well, okay, what does it mean then to repent? Because we could say, well, we're saying that we can do nothing. We're saying that we can't merit our salvation. We also say that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But here, he tells us to repent. How are we to understand that? Well, the word alone means simply to change one's mind. That's the general, even secular use of that word in, in ancient Greek, to simply to change one's mind. But as it's used in the New Testament, they co-opted that word, even the Jewish uh, people prior to the New Testament times co-opted that word and they used its meaning and applied it in a broader sense to mean not just a change of mind but rather a change in our moral action that is a, a, a moral change so it's a change of mind it's a change of heart that brings about an effect in our lives and we can see this in how Paul uses this term in Acts 26 and verse 20, he's describing his gospel message that he has preached. And he says this message was simply a calling to the Jews and to the Gentiles to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now what I really want to key in on there is the phrase repent and turn to God. See what he's doing there is he's using a literary device where he's taking two concepts and using them to describe one total action. 
What I mean by that is, if you think about what it means to turn, right? You physically, it's impossible to turn away from something without turning to something else. And those who are Reformed have always really understood this, I think, very well. It's the reason, if you look at our catechisms, that when it comes to giving exposition and explanation of the Ten Commandments, what do you find in there? Well, you find that, we ask, okay, what is commanded in so-and-so commandment, and what is forbidden in so-and-so commandment. And what they're saying is, in every commandment, there's something that is expressly commanded and expressly forbidden, or vice versa. That is, there's two things involved. And so likewise with repentance, it doesn't simply involve returning away from sin, but also a turning to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But also notice, according to Paul, the performance of deeds is not repentance itself. It's the fruit of repentance. So repentance is not good works. Repentance results in good works. Maybe say it in a different way. If a danger is ahead of me, let's just make it kind of silly, but let's just pretend there's a building on fire and I'm walking toward it, right toward the front door. Now we would say it would be senseless to walk into that building for no good reason, but that's what I'm headed to do. Now if I only turn my head, but I keep walking toward that building, you would say to me, well, you didn't really turn away. You merely just looked away, but you kept on going the way you were headed. Instead, the sensible thing... The thing that would be a true turning away would be if I turned a 180 and went away from that burning building. In other words, away from the danger and toward safety. And this is exactly what Jesus offers to all who will receive his word. When that word comes to them, when that grace impacts their heart, it results in their eyes being opened and they're turning away from that sin and to him. Which is why, again, the confession later on says, although repentance is not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of so such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. In other words, what the confession is getting at, rightly from the Scriptures, is that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. True faith in the person and work of Christ necessarily involves turning from sin and to Him. It's a convictional turn from the sin you once loved to the Savior that you now love. So here then, our Savior's words this morning, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This repentance is not a work or a meritorious act. It's not law which says do. It's gospel which says done. Because he doesn't say, all right, you're going to perish, therefore do these things that maybe you can get by. Now what Jesus is doing is coming and saying, there's an opportunity to turn to me. And that is the only way that you will find salvation. Because why? Their sins, our sins, deserve eternal 
punishment. And the only way the justice of God can be satisfied is if those sins are punished and satisfied, that debt paid. And so the reason the offer of repentance goes out is because Jesus comes and says, done. It is finished. Your sin has been taken upon me and I have paid it in full. And that's why the call, the command to repent is still of grace and goes right along with faith. It's because we are not trusting in ourselves, we are trusting in Jesus Christ himself. And for that reason, your faith will not be perfect. Your repentance will not be perfect this side of heaven. Your resting, your believing, your trusting in Christ will be imperfect. But the grace of the gospel, the turning that Jesus calls to, the faith he calls us to is this reality that our salvation is not based in our perfection of what we perform or even in the faith that we have, but it's rather based in the perfection of the one to whom we turn. And his work is not only sufficient, but it is perfect for all his elect whom he came to save. So this then, again, in closing, is the amazing thing here, that Jesus made the way for our abominable, terrible sin to be paid for in himself and for us to go free out of his abundant love for us. That's what happened on the cross. That's the gospel Jesus was preaching here. And so simply put it as this, turn from sin, Rest in Christ by faith and be assured, assured by the authority of God's word and what he says. That if you have turned from your sin, you are resting in Christ alone and not yourself. Your sins are forgiven. That's the gospel encouragement that we have in this wonderful word of God that he's entrusted to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that builds us up, Lord, that has made us to live, to have eternal life before you. We thank you, Lord, that it builds your church and that you've entrusted this gospel to your church. We ask that you would help us to be um, Lord, more faithful professors of this word. We're better witnesses to our neighbor, but at the end of the day, Lord, just more thorough more devoted, more loving worshipers of you, that you would receive glory from us at every step of the way. But we also, Lord, confess that only through Christ is our worship worthy, is our worship received. And we praise you that that is the truth. I ask that you would be with every man and woman and child gathered here today, that you would increase faith in all of us, and that, Lord, you would increase holiness in all of us as we are transformed by your word that you would be honored and glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all turn to number 433. Amazing grace. <laughs>